Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Revelation chapter number 5, verse number 1, starting, the Bible says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within, and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I went much... This is John speaking, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Tonight, I want to speak to you on this subject matter. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Father, I come to you tonight. I pray, O Lord Jesus, that you would open our eyes and our understanding, God, to your word. Grant us understanding, I pray, God, as we consider this this evening. I pray, O Lord God, bring enlightenment, Jesus. Lord, you're able to help us this evening, God, as we would read, Lord, these pages, that they would become life to us. God, how we would be able to order our steps, Lord, and how we can live, Lord, in a proper manner and way, God, before you. We'll love you and thank you for it. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen, amen, amen. You may be seated tonight in the lovely name of Jesus Christ. And so we've changed gears. We finally got out chapter 4, and we're in chapter 5, and hopefully we can make a sweeping uh, dash through chapter 5 this evening. I feel pretty confident that we'll be able to do that. <clears throat> and although we're starting a new chapter, the scene is still the same. This is John having a vision of heaven as, as it were, uh, a vision of the throne room in particular of heaven. Uh, but with each case, he gives us just a little bit more detail along the journey. He doesn't just lay it all upon us at once, but gives us a little bit more detail as he Uh, is introduced to some new interactions with what's going on in this vision of heaven that he has. And in this particular vision, the little more detail that we have is still one that's sitting on the throne, but there is, as the Bible prescribes in his right hand, a book. And on this book, there are things written within it and on uh, the backside or on the outside, if you will, of it. It's sealed with seven seals, uh, and it's just stationed there. And it's very important to remember, and I can't emphasize this enough uh, for tonight's lesson, but it's important to remember that what John is seeing here is a vision. Uh, I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, This is a uh, period of time because John in this vision is going to underscore a transition or a particular period of time in history that has been, that's going to be very vital to qualifying the worthy status of the one that's able to loosen the seals upon this book. 
John's going to refer to something, a period, an era of time in the past that is vitally important for qualifying who is going to open the seals on this book. So there's a lot that's hinging upon this sealed book in the vision that John has. There's a lot that's hinged upon this. Uh, and just to illustrate that there is, whenever first the voices come that they searched in heaven and they searched in the earth and they searched beneath the earth and they found no man worthy, John is provoked to tears. He begins to weep. Uh, he is just so struck that there is no one worthy because of the importance that's contained within this seven-sealed book and how important it would be for uh, the future. And John had an understanding of that. If I can just kind of digress just a little bit and set a stage here tonight, I would dare to say that we all agree and we'll use Scripture along the journey as we do, but God as creator of the whole earth, as creator of the universe, everything that we can see and cannot see, as creator of all things, uh, we understand that the earth is the Lord's by virtue of him just being the creator. The psalmist David said in Psalms 24 and verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. We understand he's the creator of all these things and so it, it, the deducement is this. If he created it, it belongs to him. That's his. However, if we, and I'm going to just say a few things and we'll go piece them together, okay? So I don't want you to get lost in translation. All right? There in the Old Testament time, there was provision for God's people, the Israelites, in the Levitical law. Whenever they came into that land of promise and they were each tribe's given different lots of land and different inheritances of that land, that was to be for each of those tribes as a perpetual inheritance. It was to be theirs and their family after them for generations and generations to come. Now, there were things that would happen called life. Life would happen sometimes. A person get down on their luck. Uh, they've expended all their money, which money wasn't a big commodity back then. It was the resources that they had, their livestock, so on and so forth. And sometimes they use livestock to pay for things. But it could get bad enough for a society. It's according to how the seasons went and how, how the produce went that they may have found themselves having to sell part or whole parts of their land in order just to keep the members of their family. Because when it got real bad, they started to have to put some kids up for sale. Now, nobody, I know someone wished they could go back to that right now. You have a few kids you'd like to, but uh, that's just the way it was. And so with that being the case, though, there was a certain safeguard built into the law concerning their land that was to be a perpetual inheritance. God wanted them to have that. And there's a safeguard there that if they ever did have to do that, there were years of jubilees where those, those pieces of land that were sold to another person would be released back to their original owner. And there were other times, though, if prior to a year of jubilee ever coming, if they had a kinsman or if they had a relative that was capable of redeeming the land with money, whatever the cost may be, they could redeem it. They could buy that back. Uh, for their relative or for their friend. And this is what the Bible states concerning that. So if Israelite sold his lamb, he could have a near kinsman redeem it back. The Bible says in Leviticus 25 and verse 23 that the land shall not be sold forever. See, God's making a provision. I want you to have that. This is to be your perpetual inheritance. For the land is mine, for ye are strangers and sojourners with me. 
And in all the land of your possession ye shall grant a redemption for the land. If thy brother be waxen poor and have sold away some of his possession, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. So there was the provision there for these people getting back their land. And a really good story that illustrates this very well is found in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is kind of centered around this concept and idea. Naomi leaves Bethlehem of Judea and goes and sojourns in Moab for a period of time. She loses her husband and her two sons, but while her sons were over there, they got married. Amen. Ruth and Orpha became Naomi's daughter-in-laws. But there came a time she heard that there was bread back in Bethlehem of Judea, the Bible says. And she returns back home. But whenever she left, she left the land. She left the land that belonged to uh, her husband and all the farmland there. When they go back, it's like under the hand of another. And as the story goes, I'm not trying to tell the whole book of Ruth here. I said I'd be mindful. But as the story goes, they find a near kinsman redeemer, someone that's related to Naomi, that's capable to go and purchase back the land for Naomi to have again because God wanted that land to be their families and tribes for generations and generations to come. However, whenever we think in the terms of the earth and the world, nobody thought it would be possible to redeem what was lost in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. Okay, stay with me here for a moment. No one would suspect that they could somehow redeem what was lost in the Garden of Eden from the first family because we must remember now, all the earth is the Lord's. The day, Psalmist David tells us that. Everything that he created is his because he was the creator. But the Bible also tells us in the book of Genesis that he gave something to the first family. He gave something to Adam and Eve. The Bible says in Genesis 1, verse 26, and we'll piece this together, just kind of put your finger in all these little spots I'm talking about. In Genesis 1, 26, the Bible said, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them, he's speaking about this male, female, Adam, Eve, these characters that he has created, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. It was God's design from the very beginning that he would take this thing that he was creator of and owner of, and he was going to give this to the first family, Adam and Eve, and he did, and gave them dominion over the creeping things and over the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea. And so he was giving them dominion, or he was giving them power over the earth. And that power was given to them by God, given them by the one who created all of this thing. But... Through the transgression, the sin of the first family, Adam and Eve in the garden, being deceived by the serpent as it was, being deceived by the serpent. And we know from the transgression there came curses upon the male and upon the female and upon the ground. There came curses. But in addition to that, with their sin and with their transgression, they forfeited their dominion over all the earth. They're set outside of Eden. They're separated from that. And as a result of it, they, it was a bargaining chip, if you will, so to speak, with the devil, with the enemy. And so one a major reason why the world is settled under present darkness as it is today goes all the way back to Genesis when the first family had dominion over 
and gave up power. Even in some portions of Scripture in the New Testament, the devil or the enemy is spoken of as the God of this world. The God of this world. Even in the New Testament of Luke chapter number 4, uh, Jesus is going through his temptations in the wilderness. And one of the temptations is that the devil takes him up to an exceeding high mountain. And the Bible says he shows him all of the kingdoms of the world. And tells Jesus, I'll give you all of this in just a moment. And note, if you read Luke 4... The devil even admits, I'll give you all this, but what I'm going to give you was even delivered to me. It's not mine by virtue of having been the creator. It's mine by virtue because someone gave it up and delivered it to me. He says, I'll give you all of this if you'll just fall down and worship me. So we see the power, the enemy, the devil then in this, in this possession, if you will, of something that truly from the first belonged to another. It, Adam and Eve sowed out part of their inheritance, if I can say it like this. They sowed out part of their inheritance. So anything that was going to come from the, though from the loins of Adam from that time is going to be tainted now. Uh, they might be related. They, they might meet the qualification of being related as being the Redeemer but they did not have the capability to pay the price for the earth, for the world. The first Adam couldn't do it. The first Adam pawned it off. But the second Adam, that we know to be Christ Jesus, the second Adam met all the qualifications for redeeming it. Again, when we've looked this several times, but I'm, you, there's just some things that need to be repeated. The, the Redeemer, again, had to meet three qualifications. Number one, he had to be part of the family. Number two, he had to be able to pay the price. Number three, he had to be willing to pay the price. Just because you're able doesn't mean you'll be willing. For even if we go back to our story concerning Ruth and Boaz, there was one that was closer as a relative to Naomi than Boaz was. But he spoke to me, he says, if you're not going to do the Redeeming, and take Ruth also, I will. So here is a man that was closer as far as a relative, able probably to do it, but he wasn't willing. So the willingness is just as important as the ability, all right, to do this. All right, everybody doing all right? All right, all right. We're walking, they'll tie together here. And so whenever John sees this book, and it's not a book as we think, book but when he sees this book more like a scroll that's sealed with seven seals there could, it could have been a representation of several documents because there were a lot of documents that had that type of seven seal uh fashioning in that culture in that day all right uh, and it says that it was written within and on the back side and sometimes documents were done like that. There was writing inside and writing on the outside. Sometimes the writing on the outside was a basic summary on about what was really written on the inside. It was just a summary, just a snapshot. And then the inside was the detailed picture. And then there were other things that sometimes there just wasn't enough room on the inside to write them. And so you had to write it on the outside. There was a lot involved. But when we look at these and begin to look at this, and I'm going somewhere, whenever we look again, and we've said this in previous lessons, 
that whenever we talk about what happened in Revelation, there's some parallels also from the book of Ezekiel. All right, there's some parallels from the book of Ezekiel. When we looked at Ezekiel 1, we've seen uh, uh, the throne of God, we've seen the beast around the throne, all of that, and that paralleled with Revelation chapter 4 that we spent about three weeks on. But when you go to Ezekiel 2, there seems to be a parallel with this sealed scroll terminology that you see in Revelation chapter number 5. In Ezekiel chapter number 2 and verse 9, the Bible says, and when I looked, behold, a hand was sent unto me, and lo, a row of a book. That's a fancy way of saying a scroll. <laughs> a row of a book was therein. And he spread it before me, and it was written within and without. And there was written therein lamentations and mourning and woe. So in Ezekiel's vision, he can see a little of what's written evidently on the outside of this scroll, on the outside of this books. And what appears to be written there is, I would call it a summary he says, it says there's lamentation, there's mourning, and there is woe. Now, let's just, just walk along here for a little bit. Whenever you had a scroll that was sealed seven times, uh, whenever an inheritance was mortgaged, if I could talk in modern day terms, mortgaged to a creditor, a sealed book or a sort of mortgage deed was given to the hands of the holder of the property. And so they would seal the book. Whenever the book was sealed, that was a sign of an uh, alienated inheritance, an inheritance that needed to somehow be recovered by the original owner. And whenever the original property owner would come, amen, he would come as a legal representative, he would come. The original property owner was capable of breaking the seals and bringing back or buying back, if you will, the property. And whenever he did that, he was called the Redeemer, all right? Someone say amen. So this particular mention of a story in Scripture, amen, talking about this sealed book, it's kind of like a title deed to some type of land or some purpose of that matter. It could also be a last will and testament, the way that it was wound together of some person. We read, this is not anything new in Scripture. This is not like a first occurrence, okay? Because in Jeremiah 32, we read, Babylon is coming upon Jerusalem. There's a lot of destruction. There's a lot of plundering. We talked about that in Daniel. All Babylon's coming upon Jerusalem. There's plundering. There's destruction. But Jeremiah, the Lord has already spoke to his heart. And he says, basically, your cousin is going to come to you and offer you a portion of land, and he wants you to buy it. Well, not much longer the Lord spoke that. His cousin came to him, and he says, Jeremiah, he says, I have a field in Anathoth. He said that I'm presenting to you that I would like for you to buy, and Jeremiah did just that. He bought it. And the Bible says he gathered witnesses around him and he gave the purchase price so they could witness that he gave the purchase price. Now, this isn't his land. This is somebody else's land that he's buying of the purchase that was sealed. And then he had another document of the purchase that was unsealed. So there was one that you could look at and another one that you could not look at. But see, Babylon is upon the land here. This is amazing. The Lord told him to buy a piece of land that he's not even going to be able to walk in. Buying a piece of land that he's about ready to be taken away from. Yet this is what the Lord said. And he gave this, Jeremiah gave this to a friend of his, and he put that sealed row, 
Many times it would be seven seals. The way it worked, you would break one seal and you could read a certain portion until you came to the next seal and then you broke it and wrote an, read another. It's not like you break all seven at once. You break and you see what's there. The details you break, you see what's there. And so that's all wound up. They put it in the earthen vessel because they're taken away out of Babylon. But it was a promise from the Lord because who in the world wants to buy a piece of land that's going to be plundered by war? Who wants to buy a piece of land that whenever it's all said and done with the Babylons, it's, gonna, it's not going to be fit to raise any crops on, not going to be fit for any livestock. It's just totally just under the, the, the oppression, if you will, of their adversary. But God, but God said, Jeremiah, buy that piece of land and you put it back. You put a seal. You have that seal there. It'll contain all the representations of who it belonged to, who purchased it, everything. It'll have everything there. It'll have the, the plot and the outlines of what the land is. And you put it in an earthen jar. And I know you're going away, but it was a promise for Jeremiah that you guys, although you're going away to captivity, you're not always going to be in captivity. There's going to be a day you're going to return to Jerusalem. And I got some land for you. It might have been under darkness and oppression, been trampled and taken advantage of, but the deed says it belongs unto you. Folks, what's happening here, this rolled up scroll that's in the hands of this one that's sitting on the throne, and John is a little nervous because he hopes that there's somebody worthy. I'm talking about a succession of events, a God that created the earth, for his pleasure, he's owner and operator, gave it to the first family, gave it to them to be dominion and have power over it. They, numbskulls, they just gave it up. They gave it up to the adversary. Here's the parallel. The adversary is like the Babylon for Jeremiah. The plundering the land, it's not gonna be fit for nothing, but folks, someday, the land's going back to the original owner. Just as Jerusalem was going to go back to Jeremiah and the descendants of his cousin. And it's all though the contents of all those details are wrapped up in that sealed scroll. It's going to set the record straight about who the lamb belongs to. It's going to set the record. I don't know if anybody's pulling these things together. It's going to set the record straight. So John's here. See, for years now, years, years from the beginning of time, earth's been under turmoil. Earth's been under havoc. The enemy has had his way. He's thought this is the kingdoms of my world. He's the prince and power of the air. He's doing whatever he wants, whatever he pleases. But the church has been caught away now and we're all standing there with bated breath as there's a scroll with seven seals on it that contains all the details of who the earth really belongs to, who has the power, who has the dominion, who has... That's the reason why John's heart struck. He's, this was culturally for him. He knew what that could be. Man, we need somebody. We need to give back what's been lost from the beginning of time. But the Bible says there was no man worthy. Now, I've said a lot to say little. But you understand the necessity of it. Again, consider too. Just again for consideration because we're trying along the journey ties back to Daniel so that we don't think we just went through 24 weeks with no cause. Daniel 12 and 4 said, and remember at the closure of Daniel, he said, but thou, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. 
even to the time of the end. He said, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Daniel was told, now what, what's going on right now? You, what I'm telling you right now, you seal up this book until the time of the end. The things that I'm telling you right now, it's for the distant future. I'm not saying directly that what Daniel sealed up is what about ready to become unsealed here. But I'm saying I believe there is part and partial some of those things that even what Daniel showed up that's going to be unveiled here in the book of Revelation. The Bible says in verse number five, if you will consider it. John, here he is, man, wringing his hands, bated breath. They looked in heaven. They looked in earth. They looked under the earth. There's no one worthy. Scripture says the elder, one of the elders taps John, however it gets his attention, says, don't weep, John. Don't cry. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. He says, he hath prevailed. Those two words, hath prevailed. According to Mr. Smith, he says these words indicate that the right to open the book was acquired by a victory gained in some previous conflict. That the right did not just come in action at this particular point in time, but he has prevailed. He already secured ownership and the right prior to this moment. Amen. And so the elder told John, he said, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's the root of David hath prevailed. And, and somehow, evidently, John wasn't looking, he's talking to the elder, evidently wasn't looking in the same direction that the elder was. And so he turns around to look and he sees, the Bible says, a lamb. Now, what do we talk about the lion of the tribe of Judah? We got some biblical premise concerning that. The elder wasn't just pulling that out of the air, right, getting fuzz out of his pocket. All right. The Bible says in Genesis 49, whenever Jacob is blessing his sons, he speaks in verse 9, he says, Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son. Thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion, as an old lion. Who shall rouse him? Now look at verse 10. The scepter, he says, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall the gathering of the people be. That was a word of prophecy over the tribe of Judah. That from this tribe, from this family, from this heritage is going to come one that all people will cause a gathering together of them. It was a foretelling of the Messiah. It was the foretelling of Christ Jesus for you and I. The Jews still looking for the Messiah, but it was a foretelling of the Messiah. He says, so this is the lion he is the lion, amen, of the tribe of Judah. The Bible says the root of David. In Isaiah 11 and verse 1, the Bible says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Verse 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be Glorious. See, as humanity, you can trace the genealogy of Jesus Christ and his roots were in David. 
as humanity, Jesus Christ's roots was in David. But as deity, he was the root of David. Humanity, his root was in David. As deity, he was the root of David. Amen. But then we come to this thing that whenever John turns, he sees, the elder said, a lion. He turns and he sees a lamb. Now the word translated lamb here originally means a little pet lamb or a young lamb. It's taken from the idea and description from the book of Exodus 12 of the paschal lamb, the lamb for Passover, the feast of Passover. Because according to Old Testament law in Exodus 12, whenever they chose a lamb for Passover, they were to choose that lamb and they were to keep that sacrificial lamb in their house for four days. The choosing happened four days before execution. And they kept that lamb as four days in their house virtually as a pet. They forged a relationship. They forged a relationship with the lamb before they ever executed the lamb. See, because to be detached from what was going to be sacrificed, you can't call it a sacrifice unless there's some type of attachment there. And so they're going to take the lamb in their home for four days. And through that, the kids are going to play with it. It's going to eat at your table. It's going to get up in your bed and sleep at the bottom of the foot of your bed like some of your dogs. And it's going to get attached to you. And you're going to get attached to it. But on day number four, you're going to take that thing that you've grown attached to, have a relationship with, and now love. And you're going to sacrifice it. Amen. And so this just wasn't any lamb. But it's a lamb as though the scripture says it had been slain. It's a lamb as it had been slain. In other words, it had all the marks of sacrifice, all the marks of death in its body, but it's a living lamb. It had been a dead lamb, but now it's an alive lamb. This lamb, again, I preface, I underscore, because this will be important for a period here later. This is a vision that John has taken in. This is not a literal occurrence right now for John. This is just a vision he's taken in. How do you know it's a vision, Brother McGee? I'll tell you one way that I know. He's seen a lamb that had seven horns and seven eyes. When's the last time you've seen a lamb that had seven horns and seven eyes? This is a vision. Amen. This is a vision. But it has seven horns and seven eyes. We've looked at horns before with prophetic scripture. Uh, dominion, power, seven. Again, this is not a real number. This is a figurative number. Completeness, fullness. This lamb has all power. Fullness of power, and it has seven eyes. Again, eyes. Remember when we talked about eyes concerning the cherubim, seraphim, and the four beasts? Eyes all around. The perceptiveness, the perceptiveness of them, having knowledge of everything around them. Well, he has seven, seven eyes. Again, fullness or completeness, if you will, of perception. Uh, it might relate to his omnipotence, all power, and his omniscience, all knowing, all perception, the lamb that had been slain. Now, the elder, <laughs> the elder is seeing it as a lion. 
lion is the king of the beast of the jungle. The lion can do as he will. He can execute judgment at a moment's notice. Whenever Christ comes the second time, he will be coming as the lion. But whenever he came the first time, he came as the lamb. Because judgment didn't need to happen with his first course upon the earth. Redemption. <laughs> Redemption needed to happen. Now, I'm, I'm, I keep track of time here. Now listen, this is a, everybody say, this is a vision. So before someone starts counting one on the throne and another one that's worthy, taking the book from the one on the throne, let's pause and consider again. This is a vision. This scene is describing what John sees is happening, a vision, spiritual realm. We know there's symbolism with equating Christ as the lamb, but Christ is not a literal lamb. He don't have seven horns, okay? He don't have seven eyes, all right? Vision. John sees this vision of a lamb with seven horns, seven eyes as a representation that's approaching the throne. All right? But there's not a literal... I just tore my Bible. so There's not a literal approach. You get sweat on your hands and you do that and that happens. There's not a literal approach here that's taking place. John is seeing... This is important. This is efficient. What John is seeing is a period of time, a transitional period, if you will, in history the crucifix of Christ the lamb as though it had been slain he's seeing an era of time that qualified Christ for being the seal breaker of the book alright he's seeing a period of time Calvary death, burial, resurrection he's seeing a period of time that qualified, that gave the worthy status, that gave the worthy status to Jesus Christ, the one that could loose the seven seals of this book. Now notice, after he takes the book in this vision, all right, the vision, because <laughs> here's, here's the thing, folks, and I might be jumping ahead, I don't know, who cares? Whenever Jesus was born of a virgin birth, he became part of the family. But at that point, he wasn't worthy to break the seals. Whenever he had that body, that then gave him flesh and blood. Mm -hmm. John 4, 24 says God is a spirit. Don't have flesh and blood. But when God manifested himself in the flesh... 1 Timothy 3.16. Mm-hmm. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Uh-huh. Whenever that happened, that gave him a body. Gave him blood. And you know what the purchase price is? Blood. But he still wasn't worthy. It's only when that body was crucified, the lambs that had been slain was the one that was worthy. So John is taking in all this picture. We're not seeing someone going to someone else, a deity going to a deity and getting a book. It's a vision. 
But he's concentrating on the era of time of the life of Christ that qualified him for unwrapping the seals, getting the earth back, mm-hmm. unleashing the final judgments. Someone say amen. The Bible says, look what takes place after in this vision, he takes the book of all those that are around the throne. Look what they say in verse number nine of Revelation 5, verse number nine. The Bible says they, sang a new, they, they sung a new song, saying, look, they're speaking to the lamb in the vision with the seven horns and the seven eyes. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Look at the word for. They're telling us why he's worthy. He's telling us this is the reason. This is why you're worthy. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, and people, and nation. Mm-hmm. God created the earth. It was his. He gave it to the first family. They flubbed up, and by virtue of that, they forfeited their dominion of the earth to the enemy. He's had dominion over it for all of this time up until Calvary. Whenever God made himself a body, God says, I'm getting back what belongs to mine, but I have to do it through a man, Jesus Christ. I'm going to make myself a body. I'm becoming that man here upon the earth. And whenever I come, there's blood in my veins. I become a part of the family because I wasn't made in the likeness of an angel according to New Testament scripture, but in the likeness of humanity, a man. I'm part of the family. I got blood. I'm going to Calvary. At Calvary, he became worthy. But nobody needed to open the seal until after the rapture of the church. And after the rapture of the church, the one that had been slain says, I'm coming forth to redeem and get back what's rightfully mine. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof and all them that do well there in. And they all say, you're worthy, you're worthy to open the seals. Why? Because thou wast slain. Thou wast slain. You redeemed us by your blood. So right here is what validates the lamb's worthiness to open the book. He was slain, but he is alive. The death made him worthy, but he didn't stay dead. He resurrected. His birth made him part of the family. His body gave him the capable ability of paying the price, but his death finalized the transaction of his worthiness because he was willing to pay the price. Mm -hmm. The Bible says in John 5, St. John, St. John 5, Oh, Lord, don't let me transgress. Let me keep my word. John chapter number 5, verse 26. The Bible says, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And hath given him, everybody say authority. Everybody say dominion. To execute judgment also. Because, look, this is important. Not, not because he's the Son of God, but he slides in the humanity factor here because he's the son of man. As God, he did the miracles. As God, he broke the bread. But as man, he hungered, he thirsted. Uh-huh. As man, the body's what gave him the blood. That came from his mama's side. That came from his earthly side. That came from his human side. 
Because that which overshadowed Mary was the Holy Ghost, the Bible says, and that which was conceived in her was of the Holy Ghost. Daddy was the spirit, but mama was of humanity. And so perfectly bound up in the man, Christ Jesus, was a God that could walk on water, and at other times his humanity had to drink water. Hmm. But he says, look now, because in the seals we're going to see. It's not just the regaining of the earth back, but it's given the final judgment to the last one who had control of the earth, the adversary. Judgment is coming. He says, you're able, I've given you authority to execute judgment, and that came with your son of man status, being born of a virgin birth, entering into the realm of the family of humanity. All right? The only reason the elder could see him as a lion in judgment is because the populace of his day seen him as the son of man. Before he robed himself in flesh, there was none worthy. He said, there's no one in heaven, there's no one in earth, there's none below. But this transitional period of time in the life of Christ sealed his worthyship to take care of the seals. Amen. So again, this is a vision. John is not describing another deity. Describing a transitional period of time. A symbolical picture, if you will, of God manifesting himself in the flesh as Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, and dying. John the Baptist knew well what he was saying in John 1.29. He said when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Hebrews, I think it is, says that he is the lamb that was slain from the foundation. Now, he wasn't slain at the beginning, but in the mind of God, as it were, he already had a cure for the hopelessness that occurred in the beginning. I got a safeguard to keep the land where the land needs to be and the dominion and the authority where the authority needs to be. And what was in the will and mind of God, he willed uh through the life of Christ. He made himself a body and came down to dwell. Amen. It's really like Jesus has such a struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will. Who's speaking? Humanity. Not my will, but thy will. Who's he talking to? God, the spirit. The spirit that was invested. The spiritual and the human side of every one of us. The human side said, let this cup pass for me. But the spiritual side said, nevertheless, not my will, not my human will, but thy will be done. What's your will? From the foundation of the world, it's been that you'd be the lamb slain because that's going to make you, that's going to qualify you to be worthy in the end of time to unseal everything that needs to be sealed and get the earth back. All right. All right. I'll just kind of, rather than read this, I'll just kind of throw this. Revelation 5, 7, whenever in the vision, he came and took the book out of the right right hand of him that sat on the throne. Again, it's a vision, all right? For one thing, it's the right hand. It's that place of power and dominion. It's a vision. He's saying this, this transitional period, this act of time 
secured the book. Do you understand that? It's not a literal transfer. He's just saying this moment of time in the life of Christ secured the book. It, it, it sealed it. it. Well, not sealed it, unsealed it, I guess, really. But it, it took care of what was taking place. You can see the parallel to that in Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. Because the Bible speaks about not the Son of God, but the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. All right? And then there was dominion and glory and kingdom of all peoples and nations given him. You can look back for your homework. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. I got to go on because I got just a few other little things to say before I don't say anything else. The Bible says whenever all this happened in verse number 8, that the beast and the four elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them, and this is interesting to me, maybe not to you, but to me, every one of them had, it says, a harp. So they had harps. Now, when we talk about harps, we think about music, don't we? Know about harp, harp music. Maybe people like harp music. I don't know. Think about music. We think about praise. We think about worship, and rightfully so. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, uh, it was traditionally used. The harp was as a musical instrument in praise. Throughout the Psalms, you can see on varied occasions the mention of a harp in different places in the Old Testament. But harps, and this, this, this put in, puts emphasis on the value of the first part of our service. Okay? Because not only were harps for praise and worship and music, but particularly in the Old Testament, harps were also associated with prophecy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And whenever you start talking about prophecy, the foretelling of something that has not yet come, you're delving into the supernatural. So harps were not only associated with the natural realm of just music and praise, but they also delved into the supernatural. What we do before we ever preach is more than you mimicking words on the screen and raising an idle hand. If we approach it with the right concept, we are delving into the supernatural. Now look, I just got several verses of Scripture. Are you with me, Sister McGee? I'm going to just run through these, okay? 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse number 5, the Bible says, After that thou shalt come to the hill of God, this is uh, the prophet Samuel speaking to Saul after he told him, you're going to be the next king that's going to happen. He says, after thou shalt come to the hill of God, where is the garrison of the Philistines, and it shall come to pass when thou art come thither to the city, that thou shalt meet a company of prophets coming down from the high place, with them sultry and a tabret and a pipe and a harp before them, and they shall prophesy. Uh, prophesy. Harp is in, in conjunction with prophecy, but there's more. Second Kings chapter 3 and verse number 15. Elisha is standing here before a group of people. There's Jehoshaphat there and some others. And he says, these are the words of Elisha, bring now, but now bring me a minstrel. Now listen, whenever I looked up minstrel in the Hebrew language, it said to play on a stringed instrument. For instance, a harp. And it came to pass when the minstrel played, the hand of the Lord came upon me, and you know what Elisha started doing? Prophesying. Now, I, I know some people, I know some people that God uses very greatly in the gifts. And they have told me that there are times, I don't know what it is about, I'm just telling you what their story. They said there are times that there are certain songs that are played that whenever it happens, he says the supernatural concerning the gift of prophecy comes upon me and God is ready to speak because music is more than just music. It's tapping into the super... That's the reason why the wrong kind of music. 
If you're not delving into the world of heaven, you'll be delving into the world of a lesser underworld. You can delve into the supernatural one way or the other with music. But he said the minstrel, he came and he played that stringed instrument. And as he played, the hand of the Lord came upon me and he prophesied. In 1 Chronicles 25 and verse number 1, the Bible says, Moreover, David and the captains of the host separated to the service of the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jeduthun, who should prophesy with harps, with psalteries and with cymbals. And the number of the workmen according to their service was blah, blah, blah. What he's saying was, he's saying, boys, come over here. We need, we need to tap into the supernatural. We need to get into the prophetic. Bring your harp. Bring your music. So folks, let me tell you something. We don't need to get into the, the little humdrum of just coming in, oh, bless God, this is the first part of service. No, no, no. Honey, in the moment and a twinkling of an eye, you can be involved in worship and praise and the supernatural open up and your body get healed, your spine get corrected, your asthma go, your diabetes leave. Oh, yes. Why is this interesting? Because in the book of Revelation, when all of this is happening, they all had a harp in their hand. Why? Because what are we studying? Revelation, the book of prophecy, prophetic events. They say, grab your harps because here comes some more unfulfilling of the prophetic. Right now, we're tapping into the supernatural. Yeah. Hallelujah. The Bible says they sang, they, they sung a new song. Um, many, I don't have time to go in through scriptures because I'm already past my time, amen, that I had set, but that's all right. But as you go through the word of God, you read different episodes where there was a new song sung. It's not just in the book of Revelations. You read a lot of times through the Psalms about a new song that is being sung. But there's something that you gotta start drawing the lines of association. Almost every time where you see that you're reading about a new song, it's always associated with Redemption, because whenever you're redeemed, you cannot or should not sing the same old song you used to sing. There should be a new song upon your lips because you're not the old man anymore. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus and a new creature should have a new song. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's a song of redemption. There's numbers attributed here the Bible speaks about those that were there, the number of them in verse 11, 10,000 times, 10,000s and thousands of thousands. People tried to do the math, said this is how many there's going to be, baloney. This is figurative, folks. 10,000 is the largest single number used in the Greek, in the New Testament. Largest single number. You know what it's interpreted as? Innumerable. Do your math, multiply 10,000 times 10,000, take 1,000 times 1,000. Innumerable innumerable stand with me I'm going close again when are they close in these closing verses and I, I'm not going through here as a commentary hitting every verse I'm trying to get the meat off the carcass okay but in the closing verses of that chapter you know what they're going back to and folks if there's anything that should emphasize this to this, you see whatever happens in heaven, they always go back to a certain point. You know what that point is? Worship. You see it in chapter 4. All this took place took place, and at the end of the chapter, they're back bowing down, they're worshiping. We've had seals and all this, who's worthy, all this stuff. You know what they're going back to at the close of the chapter? 
Man, people's falling down saying amen. Bible says the 4B said amen, and the 4 and 24 elders fell down and worshiped. And you start seeing little details there. It starts talking about every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, as it were in the sea. What's going on? Because they had been under a master of a different world from the beginning of time. And one that was worthy is able to unleash that seal and get them back in proper hands. So all creation, Romans speaks about that even all the earth groaneth and travaileth. What they're waiting for, the unraveling of the book. They're waiting for the worthy one to step up and start breaking them open. Why? That puts them back in the rightful hands of the one that created them from the beginning. Honey, they're all praising. They're all worshiping. Why? They got liberty. They got freedom. They're back in the rightful hands of the one that created them. Dominion is restated into the rightful hands. And the enemy is on the verge of going down because the unleashing of the seals is about ready to take place. I close very quickly. And the Bible says there in verse number 13, again, this has been a vision. All right, it says in verse number 13, because I don't want you to get stumped up by this, talking about every creature saying all this, all that them that heard I say in blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth up on the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And we're not talking about somebody sitting on the throne, somebody else that's the Lamb forever and ever. The word and, and I've explained this to you before. There's a word called kia in the Greek for the word and, and it is translated as even. In other words, the one who sets up on the throne even unto the Lamb forever and ever. Again, it's just referring. Thank God for the one who sits on the throne and we're thankful for that transitional period of time and era that made all of this possible. <laughs> it's like all this has been made possible today by period of time Calvary but it reaches to the highest mountain and it flows to the lowest valley his blood that gives me strength from day to day it will never ever lose its power I love you Jesus oh can we just raise our hands in this place thank you for listening if you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.